Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Jim Potts, and he's just published a, re, a new version of a book he wrote titled Defending a Serial Killer, The Right to Counsel. And the new edition was published July 2021. It has a bunch of new information about this really fascinating case. I read through the book, and as somebody who lives in L.A., I had not heard of some of the details of this book. So I was delighted to read it and delighted to have him. Mr. Potts is a lawyer and author with a BA and Juris Doctorate degree. He's a former reserve captain and a POST certified terrorist investigator, a member of the open source intelligence team, and was with the Los Angeles County's Sheriff Department for 20 years, achieving the rank of captain. Potts is a certified mediator through the Los Angeles County Bar Association and a former master teacher for the University of Phoenix, South, Southern California campus, having taught undergraduate and graduate levels. His course curriculums inc included United States constitutional law, criminal law, criminal procedure, ethics, business law, and employment law. And some of that stuff, we'll cover that tonight. He has represented over 1,000 employers and industries regarding state and federal employment law compliance for 40 years. He also travels the nation speaking on domestic terrorism in front of political groups, business associations, community-based organizations, schools, businesses, as well as conducts active shooter training for thousands in and out of the workplace. He has a radio show on Sundays at 3 p.m. on latalkradio.com, discussing current events and controversial issues that are impacting our nation. Jim's blog, Listen Up, has fans in over 55 countries, and he's uh, done a lot of interviews. I've seen him around on some of the other podcasts I listen to. But again, we're going to talk about this great book titled Defending a Serial Killer, The Right to Counsel. So Jim Potts, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much, William. I really do appreciate uh, you reaching out to me um, and uh, to ask me about the book. The book is doing very well, I might add. And uh, it was a, it was a pleasure writing it. Uh, it took a lot to do it. Uh, brought back some old memories, quite frankly. Uh, some not so good, some really good, et cetera. But that's what it is in writing uh, right. based on a true story. Well, maybe we should make a warning because there is some very graphic stuff in this book. It might be dark. So if there are any children or sensitive listeners, I do not recommend having this on in the background anywhere. Um, but I think you had 18 five-star reviews right now on Amazon. Can you talk, you have like a very long CV, a long background. Can you kind of talk about kind of the gestation, the beginning of what happened and, and drew you into the story about uh, defending a serial killer? Yeah, I'll do that. Uh, I know that you gave my background uh, in terms of my professional background, but what really ties into the book is my background when I was younger and the way that I was raised. So if you don't mind, I'd like to take a moment to do Please that. Do. Please do. You know, I was raised in a small town in upstate New York. We were a uh, Catholic family. I was I was an altar boy. I was uh, I was an Eagle Scout. Um, so we we learned a lot of a lot of our uh, virtues, quite frankly, from our parents. And, you know, one of the things that we did learn from my father, as well as my mother, is the, you know, about respecting women as an example. So, you know, I, I enjoyed the time that I was in upstate New York. We were somewhat sheltered, you know, et cetera. Now, what happened is that I ended up going to law school from law school uh, when I was in law school. Ron Smith, one of my professors, contacted me. And basically, he asked me, would I be interested in working on a death penalty case with him? And, you know, you're in law school. So it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a no brainer. And when Ron asked me to do it, it was uh, it was a pleasure, first of all, and an honor for him to have asked me to do that. He had been appointed by Justice Rose Byrd. And 
I did not know really, to be honest with you, about the details until I actually got the transcripts. The transcripts were about 4,000 pages and, you know, with exhibits and transcripts and exhibits. And as I started to, to read through the material, I then learned what Michael Madsen had done. He was the serial killer that I wrote about. And to be honest with you, I was really put off about it because as I read it, I found out that he had kidnapped, raped, and sodomized uh, six women, girls included, I should say, uh, with the young, youngest one being nine years of age. And that completely threw me. I mean, I knew he was on death row. So that part wasn't a shocker, but I really didn't know the details about what happened until I started really getting into the materials. And as I started reading through it, I started thinking about my own background in reference to his background. I mean, I was an Eagle Scout. I was an altar boy, you know, went to all Catholic, you know, all Catholic schools. I mean, raised so completely different from this individual to even think about trying to help somebody like this get off of death row. Now, just for people to understand, anytime that you get the death penalty, uh, especially in California, there is an automatic appeal to the California Supreme Court. Now, he was a self-confessed killer, which is what the book is, you know, book goes into as well. And so he, he had confessed, but he went through a trial and he was found guilty. And the appeal process, as I said, uh, is automatic. So as I'm reading through this and I'm comparing him to my background, um, I was married at the time. And when I told my wife at that time, who was pregnant with our first child, about what this appeal was all about and who this person was and what he had done, uh, she was quite uh, put off by it. Uh, you know, being a an expectant mother, uh, she was very sensitive, so to speak. And, you know, the thought of me helping somebody like this get back to get back out on the street was kind of not what she what she wanted. So we went through this tug of war about it. And, and to be honest with you, a part of me understood because again, this this person was just not the ideal person in terms of the, in terms of his background in comparison to my background. But then, is what I got to thinking about was the fact that when you get ready to enter the legal profession, and you talk, start talking about representation, you really just can't get out of a case just because of the fact that you you find the subject matter repugnant. And of course, the subject matter for this was repugnant. So I went through this 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 battle within myself regarding whether or not to assist this person. I went through this tug of war with myself and went through a tug of war with her, of course. And I, I finally decided, well, if I'm going to get into this profession, then I'm going to go ahead and see this thing through. Now, there's a lot of times when people ask, how can you represent somebody, the common person asks, how can you represent somebody that you know that's guilty? And quite frankly, he was guilty. There was, I mean, there was no, there was no two ways about it, but that's not it. Everybody deserves their day in court. I mean, look at what's going on right now in the news. There's so many high profile cases that are going on right now. And, you know, it always, it always tickles me, William, that no matter what evidence you have against somebody, what do they always come in court and say? Not guilty. We got them on camera. We got 20 witnesses, but it doesn't matter because the bottom line is they still deserve their day in court. That is part of our judicial system. And the other thing that I like people to understand is that, because you hear a lot of people speaking out against the judicial system. 
And this would have been a situation that would have been similar to that had he gotten off. But there's, there's reasons sometimes why people commit the crimes that they do. So when a person comes in and says not guilty, there may be a not guilty based upon something in a person's background, uh, his mental capabilities, uh, you know, et cetera. Like John Hinckley that shot Ronald Reagan. The jury found him to be insane. You know, so what happened? You know, everybody was in an uproar and then actually changed the law after that as a result of that verdict. But he ended up spending, you know, years, you know, in an insane asylum, et cetera. And then he was eventually released. So you have to take all of those things into consideration. But more importantly, what we have to look at, he deserves his constitutional rights. And one of the points that I make in the book is that the judicial system cannot be controlled by emotions. And look once again at what we're going through right now without all of these high profile cases. They are all based upon emotions. Uh, You know, Jesse Smollett the other day is testifying and he's yelling at the prosecutor. Why? It's emotions. Uh, The situation with the Rittenhouse case, the judge got mad, you know, because the prosecuting attorney did something improper. And, And my point of view with this is that the people that are within the judicial system, and I'm talking law enforcement, the prosecutors, the judges, et cetera, they have to also understand that they have to leave out their emotions, all right? Everybody has to leave out their, and that's very difficult to do, especially in a case like this one, where this individual had kidnapped, raped, murdered, and sodomized, you know, the youngest victim being nine years of old, nine years of age. How can you leave the emotions out of that? Well, you can't always. And that's why we have a jury and, and the jury comes in, you know, but they're sitting in a box listening to all of this. And how do you control yourself? So the book goes into the struggle that I went through. And it also goes into saying that, look, everybody's entitled to their day in court. Everybody's entitled to their constitutional rights. And as I started reading through the material, uh, the transcripts, et cetera, I found an issue in there that, in fact, in my opinion, his rights were violated. And that's why part of the book title is called The Right to Counsel, because they're arrested. Right. Sorry to interrupt, but you're right. This is a very timely book. There are themes within this book. You talk about the rules of professional responsibility, uh, due process. Your law professor who you worked for was a magistrate. So trying to go through and look and make sure the system operates correctly. But maybe before we get too far, who was Michael D. Matson? Can you talk okay. about his crime spree from California to Nevada and kind of the baseline of, of the facts of the case? It was what, 77, 78? Is that right? Right. His first victim was nine years old as a little girl. And as what happened was she was at a pool, one of those public pools with her sister. And she was ready to go home. And the older sister wasn't. And the older sister was there having fun with friends, et cetera. So she started crying. She was upset. And then Michael Matson was parked on the street as an observer. And he saw the little girl have this conflict with her sister. And basically, the little girl was going to walk home. Well, when she came outside to the park, he was there. And he started talking to her, et cetera. And he said, well, look, I'll take you home. And that was her mistake. Because when she got in that car, it was the last time that her family any family member would see her alive again. And, you know, he he, he took her. Uh, they finally found her at Whittier Narrows. I don't know if you know where 
Whittier narrows his Whittier Park. It's off the 605 heading south. Right. It's it's down that way. It's kind of and, East LA on the way to kind of Riverside. Yeah. I, yeah. So at any rate, well, it's more south than it is uh, heading uh, heading, but it doesn't matter. But at any rate, so that's where they found her, and you know, and 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 it didn't take long to figure out what's going on. But meanwhile, everybody was searching for her, as you can imagine. Everybody was frantic. The LA County Sheriff's Department. It was all over the news, and then they eventually did find uh, somebody found her at the park. So right, and you heard it on the news too. So before you even got involved in this case, you remember this young exactly. girl who was murdered. Right? And the reason why I remembered it was because of the fact that, once again, we were listening to the news and my wife and I were very sensitive to the type of issue. I mean, you're talking about a nine year old girl. And, uh, you know, and you think that I would eventually be involved in that was, you know, I want to say it was so ironic. But at any rate, so so that's what so that's what happened. Well, he didn't stop there. But his other victims, they. They got in this car voluntarily. You know, our parents always tell us, don't get, you know, you tell people, don't get in the car with strangers. And these two, they, they were hitchhiking and they got in this car. And, uh, you know, they never saw their families again, except for one, the one who came back. I don't want to use names, but the, the one that came back and uh, and actually ended up testifying against them. Now, let me just back up on his background a little bit, if you don't mind. Please do, yes. He had done time, first of all, as a youth, he had a lot of issues. There was no doubt about it. He was raised in a dysfunctional family. Uh, he had a stepdad to beat his mother. Uh, he uh, was beating himself uh, as well. Uh, so he was into drugs and alcohol at a very young age. Angel dust, like really heavy stuff. Yeah, really heavy stuff. Exactly. His mother caught him sometimes uh, wearing women's clothes in these different fields. And there was this one time where he, you know, took this other little boy from the neighborhood and um, actually took a broomstick and shoved it up his rectum and made him walk home naked. I mean, I mean, this boy was really off the deep end. Yeah, and he said he preferred sex with horses to people. Like, whoa, wow, this is that, that's and, and that was another issue. So he was sexually what we were speaking is a, yeah. is a deviant, so to speak, right. I guess. And uh, so he had his issues. And you know, I don't, I don't justify, but you know, when you hear in the news about these kids that are abused when they're younger. And, you know, you don't think about it, but then here's a situation where I'm heavy into it. And, you know, there is some correlation here as people move forward. You know, he hated women and that's why he did it because he thought that his mother should have protected him against his stepfather, which she didn't do. So some of this was his backlash, so to speak, you know, uh, with that. And he eventually went into the service. You know, back then they take anybody, but he went into the service. And he, he went AWOL. Uh, for those of you that don't know what that means, it's uh, absent without leave. And he was up in Oregon. And what happened, he turned around and he was, was, he was hitchhiking himself. And this young lady and her boyfriend picked him up in the car. Well, by knife point, he made the guy get out and then drove her to a secluded place and raped her. And she came back and testified against him after he got caught. Now, think about this. They say prison is supposed to be what? Rehabilitation. In prison, he turns around and makes a decision that when he gets out, he's going to engage in the same behavior, but this time he's going to kill his victims so that he don't come back and testify against them. I mean, that's his logic, you know, at that time. So he gets out of jail. He comes to Southern California. His mother's in Southern California. So he comes to Southern California. And... Uh, 
and that's when he he engaged in the behavior with the uh, with the first victim. And he had a probation officer, so he was down here. The probation officer used to meet with him, etc. She had some concerns about him, but there was nothing that was so overt that she could really do anything about, you know. So, at any rate, so finally is what ended up happening is that he, you know, committed uh, five of his crimes here. But on the last one, what did he do? He didn't kill his victim. His victim literally, when he kidnapped her, he drove her around. Um, you know, he kept telling her he would let her go. And he tried to develop this little relationship. She was trying to do but she was afraid to get out of the car, you know, and, and just run, quite frankly. And finally, he takes her to this secluded place and he, you know, does all these sexual acts with her, you know, including rape, of course. And she was pleading to God, quite frankly, don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me. And I don't know whether or not it just touched him or whatever it was, but he ended up not killing her. And he ended up driving her within a couple of blocks of her best friend's house and, and released her. And then after he did it, he realized that he had made a mistake doing that. So he decides to get out of California. So he goes home, packs up some things. He gets in his car. Now, he doesn't have a lot of money. And he drives to Las Vegas, North Las Vegas. He gets to North Las Vegas, and now he's out of basically out of gas. And he, as we find out later on, he was heading to his grandparents' house. And they lived in Eli, Nevada. But he couldn't get there because he didn't have enough gas. So he's at this junior college. And then at the junior college, it's at night, and he sees this woman go into her car. So he ends up kidnapping her at the point of a gun. Now, what she didn't know is that it wasn't a real gun. But at night, somebody's pointing a gun at you. It looks real, good enough. So she gets in the car, and he takes her to a secluded place, and he rapes her as well. And But he needs gas. So she only had a few dollars in her purse, so that was not going to be enough to get him to where he wanted to go. So he turns around and uh, she convinces him to go back to the service station and she's got a, you know, a card that she can use, a credit card that she can use to get gas. So they go there and he basically took his eye off of her while he was getting some gas and then she ran into the store at the gas station and told the guy what was going on and then Matson, you know, obviously he drove off, headed to Eli, all right? So... Do you want to know how he got caught? Let me get into that a little bit. Yeah, let's talk about that and get to Pat Dingle. Yeah. Okay. So what happened was, was that Pat Dingle, who was the detective for the North Las Vegas Police Department, and he's got a very interesting, he had a very interesting background as well. He gets the call, you know, at night. So he's the head detective. So he responds to the scene. Now, the, the way that he found out about it is because she escaped. She called the police and they had her at a hospital. But he goes to the uh, to the school and he sees, you know, his car because he took her car, his car. So they were able to check out his car. They ran the plates on his car and, you know, it, it came back from California. It was a California hit. Obviously, he had California tags, but he's gone in her car. So they put an APB out on her car plates, et cetera, as well. And in the car, he sees some women's clothes and things of that nature. But at that point, he's not 100% sure that the car yet is, is affiliated, but then they, it, they, they, it, it gets figured out. So he, it was too late to call L.A. to do a check, so he waits until the next morning. Next morning, you know, he sends it out, you know, over the teletype, you know, about, about this vehicle. And 
it goes out all over the country, basically. Well, Sheriff Robinson up in the Eli area, because of the name Matson, he remembered that there were some Matsons that were living in Eli. And he turns around and just goes goes there. This is, and he knocks on the door. The old, you know, elderly people come out, and he comes out, and they ask, and they ask, they said, "Do you know? By any chance, you know Michael D. Matson?" And they're like, "Yeah, that's our grandson. What has he done now?" And they're like, "Well, do you know where he is?" "Oh yeah, he's sleeping in the bedroom." So, so they went in there, basically got him and hooked him up, and took him to jail. Now, here's where it starts to get dicey. Because Sheriff Robinson did everything the right way. So he gets on the phone and he calls the North Las Vegas Police Department and says, basically, hey, we have the suspect in custody. So Pat Dingle and his partner drive to Eli, Nevada and pick up Madsen. Pat told me later on that as soon as he saw him, the hairs on the back of his neck stood up. He said there was something about this guy, in his opinion, that he just thought this guy was pure evil. He just, didn't like have you seen his booking form photo? He looks out of his mind, like crazy, exactly. crazy, well, well, feral, well, like wild. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly how that's exactly what how Pat felt about him. So Pat, from the beginning, got into the emotional part of this. And what did I tell you? You got to leave the emotions out. And that's how Pat made his mistakes. Because what happened was. And Pat told me this later on, that the whole way back, well, first of all, he turned around and, and uh, read uh, Matson his rights. Matson said, I want to talk to an attorney. Okay, that's his right to do that. The whole ride back, which is about a two-hour drive, he had a gun. He had his gun in this guy's mouth the whole way back. Now, that is clearly, and Pat told me this, of course, after the, you mentioned about the first book, but this was after that. I could not talk about that in the first book. So on the way back, he's got a gun in the guy's mouth all the way back. He hated this guy. So they get back to North Las Vegas, and of course they do the lineup thing, and you know, yeah, he gets he gets you know picked up on you know pick, you know picked up uh, by the by the suspect. I mean, excuse me, by the victim, picked him out, you know, of the lineup. Okay, so now we know we got the right guy, at least for that. They did not know about what was going on in California. They only knew about this situation with this young lady in North Las Vegas. So they're in there. But what happened was, that, and this was around the same time as the Hillside Strangler, okay? So what happened was when L.A. County Sheriff's Department picked up on it and a couple of other LAPD picked up on it, LAPD thought possibly that he was connected to the Hillside Strangler because, again, it went out this guy was from Southern California. Uh, L.A. County Sheriff's Department was concerned because they had already had this other case. So they went out and LAPD went out to go interview him. Now, Pat Dingle is starting to see that, wait a second, there's some notoriety that's coming from this. You know, this guy, this is more than what they thought it was. Because now, you know, this is this could be a high-profile killer. And what he started doing before they got out there, and this is where the problem started with Pat. Pat started befriending the guy. 
talking to him, visiting with him, giving him coffee, cigarettes, even promised him drugs because he asked about drugs. And he started lulling him in, pulling him in basically to get a comfortable relationship going. And that's exactly what happened, cigarettes. And when, you know, Detective Reed from Allegheny Sheriff's Department came out, you know, they interviewed him. And Michael Madsen, oh, excuse me, LAPD came out first. LAPD came out first. And LAPD determined, no, this is not the guy. This is not the Hillside Strangler. So they were done. LA County Sheriff's Department came out. And when they came out and they started questioning him, Matson turns around and says, I can tell you about some girls that you don't even know about. Now, he started having these conversations with Pat Dingle before. So remember what I told you? He said, I wanted to talk to an attorney. They started questioning him out of the presence of his attorney. After he requested. So they should have stopped. They never should have had, Pat never should have gone forward with the kind of questions and things that he was having with them. He did end up getting a court appointed attorney. The court appointed attorney, in my opinion, you know, you know, a lot of these court appointed attorneys, they are so overwhelmed. I mean, it's just so much that they're doing, you know, in fairness to them. So he later on said he did not realize that Matson excuse me, yeah, the Madsen was wanted for murder because the issue came up was that, wait a minute, he committed a Nevada crime. Remember, that's why they have him. And now these things are in California. So because these things are in California, you're going to have to extradite him, but wait, we got him right here for the crimes here. His attorney agreed to let them extradite him because Madsen told him, I, I would rather be tried and go to jail in California. His logic, once again, we talked about him being a deviant. He said that he wanted incarceration in California because he could work in the kitchen and he would have access to liver. And you look at that and say, huh, what? Because he would use liver to stimulate himself, I'll say. That's why. So he ends up coming back to California to be tried. Now, later on, when they were questioning him, they asked him, why didn't you kill you know, the last victim? These were his words. Actually, it was because I couldn't find a rock big enough to bash her head in. That's why he didn't kill her. Yeah, so strange. I mean, you know, again, to me, this guy was not my ideal person. Just so, a terrible human being, disturbed, crazy. I mean, all kinds all of all of the above. Yeah. So, and, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Please, no, please continue. I mean, he just tell, talk about what happened with the court case from there. I mean, he eventually got convicted, right? Death penalty. What happened? He ends up getting convicted because once again, um, the young lady actually testified against him. Remember, they had a confession though. They had a confession because he had confessed. He told them about things. He even drew maps. Okay, where the bodies were. So there was no doubt about the fact that he had done what he said he'd done, but yet he went and he pleaded not guilty. So they, through, through the trial, they had these different psychiatrists, and they all said that he was capable of standing trial, and you know, yeah, you know, you know, standing, uh, yes, uh, to go to trial. So Pat Dingle came in and testified because the issue came up, obviously, regarding his uh, whether or not he was given his rights. 
Pat, under penalty of perjury, testified that he gave his rights every time. And that was not true. Pat told me it was not true. So Pat perjured himself. That was another reason I couldn't bring it up in the first book, because I knew that, but couldn't bring it up because I was sworn not to. So he didn't give Reed the Miranda rights every time. Right? Exactly. All right. So that was problematic. His attorney was not present when he was questioned at times. Couldn't do that. You know? Right. He didn't even have an attorney assigned to him for a couple of days, if I remember right in the book. That's right. right. The guy Al's Wade or Al's Weed. Right. Exactly. That's exactly so, right. So, so Pat used that time to start lulling him in, like I told you, because Pat wanted to see him. He told me flat out, Jim, I wanted to see him convicted. But it was like, Pat, but you can't, you know, you do it. He said, I didn't care. And he was a top notch. He was, a, he was top notch in his field. He, he, he became a detective at like 26 or 27 at a very young age, you know, because he was very good at what he did. But with this particular case, unfortunately, he let, the emotions get to him. Anyway, we talked about that. But anyway, so he ends up getting convicted. You know, basically, it was it was a no-brainer. But let me back up and tell you now the other struggle that I was having. Because what happened was when I read through all this material, I turned around and found the issue that his rights had been violated, you know, with this business about the right to counsel and things of that nature, because it wasn't really that clear, even from the transcript. So it was kind of subtle. I picked up on it and of course, I had to get back in touch with Ron because he was the lead attorney to say, OK, you know, I finished my research on this. And uh, Ron said, yeah, let's get together. So I meet with Ron and Ron is all excited because he figured out that they had run, read the wrong jury instruction, that he hmm. should have been given life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. So Ron was all excited about this. Now, here I am. I'm just a law student at the time. And I'm like, man, I thought maybe I missed something. So he said, what's wrong? I said, well, I think that there's a, a bigger issue here. I said, the issue to me is that they violated his Sixth Amendment right to counsel. And I explained why. And Ron was like, no, 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 no. You're crazy, blah, blah, blah. But I argued it so hard, Ron decided to go ahead and put it in the brief to the California Supreme Court. Now, when you argue in front of the Supreme Court, you only have one hour. That's it. So... For the first 10 minutes, he was arguing about this business about the wrong jury instruction. And finally, one of the justices said, wait a second, there's a much bigger issue here than the wrong jury instruction. So Ron, for the last 50 minutes, argued, you know, violation, right to counsel, Sixth Amendment. And then based upon that argument, the California Supreme Court reversed the conviction. Right. And you did some great legal research because you found a couple of cases that kind of were simple as what people in a California case, people v. Pettingill, right? Pettingill, right. Can you uh, discuss that case? Well, because, because, again, they were all the same thing. They were all that you have a right that you have to stop. OK, the interrogation once a person says, I want to talk to an attorney. And the funny part about it, that is general. But the real crux to this, by the way, was how can you bring him from Nevada to California on the extradition. So I don't want to miss that point for the listeners. What happened was I was able to, to argue that because uh, uh, Dingle knew, Pat Dingle knew about the crimes back, back in California, he became an agent of law enforcement. And we used that tie to be able to say, yes, he should have been tried because Madison wanted not to do that. Then he wanted to go back. It doesn't work that way. So he wanted to be re-extradited. Exactly. So they picked up on it and said, no, 
Okay, so Pat Dingle ended up being an agent, basically, once, uh, you know, of the California law enforcement because he started asking about crimes that he had committed back here, not just the Nevada crime, because that was a done deal from that perspective. At any rate, I don't know if people have questions with everything, but I think they're saying, uh, when was he in prison? Now, let me just tell you, let me answer that by saying this. He was, his, his conviction was reversed, all right? What happened um, was that they retried him without the conviction, without the uh, confession. And I was glad. That settled a whole lot of problems for me. We had done our job. My wife was happy that he didn't get out. And they retried him. And then they found him guilty again. Michael D. Matson, since, you know, for all of those years, spent the rest of his life in prison. Right, but, but he, I think over, I think, he did over 30, there was over 20 appeals, 30, a whole oh, lot wow. of appeals. Wow. And people don't realize. So he he was in prison from that time all the way to his death in, uh, was it 2005, 2008, somewhere around in there. But he was always appealing. People don't understand about the appeals. The appeal process, it's what they do. They go through everything. He made appeals based upon he had incompetent counsel. Uh, he made appeals based upon he wasn't tried, you know, you know, based upon uh, you know his peers, a jury of his peers. And then when you go through all of the California appeals, so his appeal eventually got back to the California Supreme Court again, and they said no. Then is what these guys do is start going through the federal appeal process, where they turn around and appeal and say California is holding me illegally, and then they start making their arguments all over again on the federal side. So that's why for all of those years. He was still in jail, but he fought this up and down until literally his death. He's, wow. he's buried right now in Eli, Nevada. By wow, way so he's back in Eli. Wasn't he in San Quentin the whole time? I think he was in Not Quentin. the whole time because he ended up getting sick, by the way. So they ended up transferring him to another. But yeah, pr primarily. And then he ended up getting sick. Because uh, remember when I told you, he was kind of a sexual deviant. So he ended up with issues, we'll just say. And um, so... You know, he even came to some of the last court appearances in wheelchair. I mean, he was he, he ended up getting really messed up to make a long story short. So I don't know the death penalty. That that would have been too quick for this guy, in my opinion. I think what he went through in the long run, even though he lived, I think he died a very horrible death, you know, from illnesses. So I think to me, maybe that was a better punishment in the long run. Right. Interesting. And I mean, I think one of the interesting aspects of your book is kind of like the moral kind of quandary, the moral difficulty right. of whether you really want to so, get this guy off or not. I mean, that, okay. it, so I that, think, was, yeah. that was the tug of war, William. More, you know, my moral values versus my ethical responsibilities to represent a client to the best of my ability. And that's what the book goes into the struggle. People think that that, that, that people that represent people that they have no conscience under these circumstances. But that's not it. You know, you can't just get out of it. So the book is about my moral values versus his to my ethical responsibility to represent a client to the best of my ability. And that's quite frankly what I did. So, again, I was happy that he ended up being retried, but I had done my job. But then I ended up not going into criminal law. <laughs> right, oh, there you go. I mean, it is. You have to really be kind of detached in that way. Like, you really do have to. And it's because the system is designed to try to make sure fairness it's over kind of the morality of it, right? Would you agree with that? I would I would agree with that. But that's what I say. The law enforcement, judges, attorneys, they can't 
they can't wrap around the emotions of this. I mean, I know, I know that people do get emotional, but police officers, especially if they get too emotional with a situation, what ends up happening? The person ends up walking. They end up getting out like he did. Just like they were right. So I tell them, I tell people, I said, look, you almost have to take them by the hand and treat them politely. Yes, sir. Let me, let me take you over here. Let me do so that no rights are violated. So this person gets their due. Because if that doesn't happen, then the victims, it, there's, there's, no, there's no justice for them. And I'm going to tell you one other point real quick. is what we don't think about. Those are victims. They're gone. But the families have to live with this for a lifetime. Like one, I can't, I can't get into because this one family asked me not to go into um, the detail on one of these victims that was, uh, that was killed. But one of the family members did tell me confidentially they took all of her pictures away. Uh, they try not to think about her at, during the holidays. And they, so the impact on the families, people don't think about as well. But it's horrible when these guys do these kind of things because it, it's, it, it reaches out there. Really does. And I think it's an important, I think you you brought it up right at the beginning too, that this can be, you can see these things happening in true crime and all of the court cases today and the passions and emotions that took place in this case. People have to be aware of these other cases that are happening today. So I think right. you made a great point at the outset. And there's so much interest in true crime, too. People really try to need to be objective. And I think you're right. You really emphasize the Constitution, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, all those yeah. things in your books. So. I, I get into these debates with people that say that, you know, because, you know, with some of the African-American, uh, you know, friends that I have, they just the system is not fair. It's not fair. Nobody ever said it's a perfect system. And it's not. Because, once again, you could have things like people's emotions, long police officers' emotions, uh, the jury's emotions, uh, the judge's emotions. There's so many variables that are involved with emotions that could send this down the wrong path. That's what's, that's what's hard about it. So the judicial system, is it, it is fair, although there's times when it's applied unfairly. Okay? So, you know, it's it, it, it happens. You know, it's a shame. I mean, there's people that we see on the news every other month or so that it gets where people are getting out of jail because they didn't commit the murders. Like the, the, the two guys that got out the other day for having killed Malcolm X. After all of these years, yeah. these guys are being released from jail because they, they now have evidence that these two guys didn't do it. Right. But it was an emotional issue at that time. Somebody had to pay the price. Right. Is there anything you'd like to add, Jim? Anything I missed before we wrap it up? I mean, I, I no, I just, you know, again, every, you know, uh, when I just think about this and it takes me back and things of that nature, I don't have any regrets on representing Matson from that perspective. Cause once I made the decision, I made the decision, you know, but I was just happy that he, in fact, uh, you know, got his day, his day. Uh, a lot of what I do right now in terms of, uh, you know, the active shooter, uh, you know, uh, trainings and the speaking out against domestic terrorism, you know, it's, it's to warn the public, be careful with these things. And I, even with that, I talk about road rage. I talk about, you know, things of, you know, making sure that, you know, that you're protecting yourself when you're out there. I mean, I'm all about protecting the community. That's why I was a, re I was a reserve officer. I don't know if you mentioned that. You said I was with LA County Sheriff's Department, but I was actually a reserve, you know, so I worked a full-time job during the day and worked as a reserve in the evenings and on the weekends and holidays and things of that nature for 20 years because I did have a passion for, you know, for the community and protecting the community. So I did my little bit that way 
as opposed to doing criminal law. And I think there's lessons there in this story as well. Those, like you said, those families lost their daughters. They did very high risk stuff. I mean, especially back then. So it's a lesson for everybody. Well, you know what? Those, all of those girls, in my opinion, except for one, made a mistake. They got in cars with people they didn't know. Right. You know, and that's and he was he wasn't a bad looking guy. You know, blonde hair. You know, he had blue eyes. I mean, so some of these girls will lulled in. Yeah, you're right. His uh, his mugshot looks like hell. But that's because it's a mugshot. <laughs> right, that's true. He's caught. Um, I mean, that's the whole thing. These guys are sinister. He's definitely really one of the more sinister figures I've ever came across. Do you? Where's the best place for people to get defending a serial killer? On Amazon. On Amazon. So that's uh, it. And when it came out on Amazon on July 20th, it was listed as the number one new release. Awesome. Uh, it was listed number three with uh, African-American biographies, right behind Little Kim, if you could believe that. And... Um, <laughs> I understand it's up, it's being considered for some awards right now. They they tell me this stuff, but for me, I I'm moving on. I'm writing two other books right now. Good. That, that well, <laughs> so based on this book, keep writing. This is an excellent book, so I highly oh, yeah. recommend people get this. So yeah, no, I, and, I I do appreciate. It's doing very well. And Jim, you're the best place for people to reach out for you on social media or if they want to contact you. Where's that? Oh, my! E I always say I, I always say email. Email. Okay. So I, my, e my email address is p as in Paul a a E as in Edward, R R E as in Edward, P as in Paul at AOL.com. So P A A E R R E P at AOL.com. And I'll put that in the show notes. Any questions after today, William? I'm glad to answer them, you know. Great. Um, well, sometimes people follow up. Sometimes people want to interview you. You never know. Like, yes, some people. But... Anyway, that was a great book and a great interview. Thanks so much. Great speaker. Again, the title of the book is Defending a Serial Killer The Right to Counsel. And it was published in July. The new edition with new information was published July 2021 by Jim Potts. So, Jim, thanks so much for your time. And thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Be My safe, pleasure. everybody. All right. Take care. Stay there. All right. Stay there.